my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome back to Currently with Curator, where I share my latest style obsessions, all of which you can access through my shopping community, Curator. I'm all about starting your year off with little luxuries to elevate your everyday, so I stocked our curated e-storefront with trendy accessories, chic home furnishings, and more that will make you feel so refreshed. As always, everything has my stamp of approval and is available for a very exclusive price. I know you're going to love shopping with us, so I'm also giving Climbing in Heels listeners an additional 25% off your first purchase with code CLIMB25. C-L-I-M-B 25. So what are you waiting for? Head to curator.com. That's C-U-R-A-T-E-U-R.com and get started today. Hi, everyone. I'm Rachel Zoe, and you're listening to Climbing in Heels. This show is all about celebrating the most extraordinary superwomen who will be sharing their incredible journeys to the top, all while staying glamorous, of course. Today, we're switching things up a bit. And instead of interviewing a guest about their journey to the top, I thought it would be a little bit interesting just because so many of you ask on my social and on the podcast, a lot of what we get is questions about my personal journey. So before I became, I don't know, the hundred things that I, I guess, have done, I was just a very small town girl from a suburb with a deep obsession with fashion and glamour. But through insanely hard work and lots of ups and downs, I became the person I always thought or could dream that I could be. So 
Here's a little bit of my story because I think it might, it's a very long story, so it might take a few episodes to talk about my road and my producer. And, you know, it's funny because she calls herself my producer, but she's really like my sister, not by blood. Anyway, so I'm going to introduce the one, the only, Mary Elizabeth. I mean, fancy meeting you here, Rachel Zoe. <laughs> How are you? you? I also thought it could be cool. And I think, you know, a lot of people have been asking me on social and in person, sort of like how I kick off a new year. And I think this year of 2023 is a very specific year because we've all sort of been through so much. I don't know. I just feel like it's cool to sort of kick off together and um, and talk about, I don't know life, year ahead, how we got here, all the things. All of the things. All of the things. I mean, you're very good when we have our guests on about painting a good backstory for them and like getting to know a little bit about who they were before they became these incredible figures that we all know them to be. So I'm going to do the same to you. Nothing's off the table, Emmy. I'm going to spill all the tea from my last, This is going to be like, I mean, rest in peace, Barbara Walters. I'm going to do my best. (laughs) Here we go. So my first question to you is when you were a young girl mm-hmm. growing up mm-hmm. in Jersey, mm-hmm. Short Hills, New Jersey, yep. what was your dream? I was definitely a very wide-eyed kid. I was a very wide-eyed kid. I was, it's funny, I I look at my kids and I they have so much sort of like confidence and candor and spontaneity and silliness, and they're very comfortable with people. And I think when I think about myself, I I kind of have these memories of me being this very insecure child, kind of shy, not so sure of myself. And then when I actually like look at pictures and think about like events and sort of certain things, I was like this very outgoing, silly kid. And I look at my kids and I just like very much remember like my dad, my mom and dad's like parties and stuff. And I would always be last one standing middle of dance floor. My dad, right. Like my, my dad, like throwing me up in the air and like, you know, then like pulling me down between his legs and on side to side. And then I remember when I finally got too big for him to do that, it was like a really sad day because I was such a daddy's girl. But, you know, I, I think that I was, I was, I was very loved. And I think that is a gift that I only really recognize and appreciate now um, and have since sort of taught my kids that it's not a given to have a very loving family. And um, I can honestly say with full gratitude, by the way, that there was never a time in my life, even in my adolescent years when I like, you know, hated my parents and everyone around me that I didn't feel loved. And I so I would say that I had a very blessed, very loving childhood with parents that just hugged and kissed me to like the point where I would just be like, no, no more. You were really fortunate. You were one of those kids who could have said like, I want to be a marine biologist. And your parents would have been like, go for it. Yes. But you had the support, meaning your parents were incredibly supportive of whatever you were going to be passionate about. It's It's very funny because when I think about it, the one thing I really remember very clearly Um, being, you know, my kids' ages now, like eight and 11, or now guys is nine. But I very clearly remember being pulled into like spotlight roles a lot, whether it was at camp or in school. And quite frankly, I didn't have the confidence, you know, and I, which is funny because I so clearly remember my dad specifically just 
being like front and center, cheering me on like that dad. Right. And when I later, we can get to it later, but when I became a stylist, my dad said, you're on the wrong side of the camera. Yeah. And my dad always said that. And he, but I didn't, I wasn't like my kids now where they just get up on stage in front of a room of 200 people and don't even think about it. I was not like that. I was nervous. Crowds definitely scared me getting up in front of people. But I dreamed, honestly, I I really do remember always wanting beautiful things. And that is literally like as young as I can remember being this wide-eyed girl going to New York City, my parents taking us to Rockefeller Center, walking around, looking at all the beautiful windows. I had this little like rabbit fur bunny jacket with a little (laughs) thing that I put my hands in and being dressed up. And I loved getting dressed up and I loved looking at things. And I remember like, we used to make this joke. They used to be like, do you want to look in the windows? I was like, if I can't have it, I don't want to look. And that was always like hard for me. And I think that ended up being a big driving force for me to like want things in life. And um, yeah, so I think fashion wasn't a a career that I knew could be. So I really did. I I, I remember just wanting to be with people. And I knew at a very young age that I wasn't going to work a desk job. Yeah, I didn't know what that meant, but I knew that I wasn't doing that. That was not your destiny. That was not in the cards for you. No. You clearly have had great taste since you were like a very small, young person. (laughs) But who would you say was the first person? And I wouldn't even, I would say to think outside of like family or friends, but who was the first third party Mm -hmm. person in your life to say to you, you have an eye, Mm -hmm. you have a talent Mm -hmm. for fashion, for styling, for putting together looks for editorial, whatever it was were you doing, who was the first person that kind of made you go, oh, wait, I'm, I, I have some confidence in this now because I, I, I appreciate that person telling me I have what it takes or I have a gift. Well, one thing I very clearly remember was my mom's best friend who has since passed from ovarian cancer, but she had boys and she was a tough mom, right? And people were a little scared of her. And I was insecure about sort of my academic abilities, right? Because I didn't love to be a student. And she used to say to me, you're as smart as any one of these kids. I know it. I see it. Do what you want in your life just by like, if you don't go to an Ivy League school, because all my parents' friends' kids went to these incredible schools. yeah. So I was always insecure about it. And somehow or another, my parents didn't really push that on me. It was interesting. It was sort of like, I think because my parents are not conservative, traditional type parents, they didn't yeah. parent that way. They didn't have that expectation in our life to like A, B, C, D is what you how you live your life. I think my mom was such a um, such a baller free spirit that was like in protests and like- It's so funny that you saying this and I have the pleasure of knowing your, your parents for many years. <laughs> But your parents are the greatest sort of parenting duo because I feel like your father is more traditional in the sense of routine and what's important Mm -hmm. and getting a degree. And to the opposite end, your mom is like this bohemian, like, let's learn by doing, make mistakes, break every rule, pick yourself back up. So you really did have sort of a dynamic example of rules and structure, but the freedom to 
sort of play yeah. jazz in between that. And I ask them that now because Raj and I are definitely parents that don't. We ask of our children that they do their absolute best, right? And and do your part. But we are definitely not, oh my God, you got to be. Right. What? Yeah. We're not those parents. We want our kids to be kids and and do their best. And when I look back at it, I realized that my parents were the same. And I asked my mom recently, like, I said, I, I have no recollection of you, like, pushing me with grades. And she said, because we didn't. Because yeah. she's like, I knew that you weren't that kind of kid. And I knew that you were going to find your own path. And so there was in my career, because I didn't really know that I was going to be a stylist, but I would say fast forwarding to my very first person that I respected outside of my family that was like, you got something. It was Tommy Hilfiger for sure. Um, But I think prior to that, it was really just women that like I would find incredibly glamorous, whether it was in the art world because my parents were very immersed in the art world. My mom had a lot of glamorous friends. There's a woman here in LA that I call my Aunt Liz that had still has the most extraordinary style. I worshipped her. Um, She was one of my first sort of introductions to the caftan. (laughs) <laughs> with long hair. And, and I you've was, never looked back. No, she was the <laughs> chicest and still is. And so I think, you know, it does take someone outside of your family to tell you that you have something in order for you to actually even consider that there might be truth to it. Yeah. If that makes sense. Totally. And I think the same is true, like on the other end of the spectrum, it's like, getting constructive criticism from a family member or a friend, I feel like is always... I don't know, not watered down, but just like yeah. maybe less impactful because I'm like, oh, that my sister's just of being course. like Judgy. petty or Judgy. she's just being whatever. But like in the opposite direction of like, it takes those mentors to give you that confidence and compliment you and really empower you to work. It also works in the same vein when they give you constructive criticism because you're like, I'm going to do better next time or 100%. I'm going to be more aware of that of or I'm going to work harder to not have that happen. Or, 100%. Yeah. So tell the Tommy Hilfiger story. I I know it, but it's it's pretty incredible. Tommy, I would say, as clear as day, was the first person I will always give credit to and be grateful for, for pulling me out of my fearful shell. Right. Because I went freelance when I was 25 years old, and I had worked at a magazine for two years. I had been shaken up quite a bit there just because I worked for some really tough women. Yeah. Let's just say I got a lot of positive feedback outside of my workplace. Got and it. And I think ultimately that probably pushed me a little bit. Pulled right? you from yes, that correct. Place. I was like, there yeah. may be a world outside of where I am, so don't be scared. And I have to say that I think my parents, because when I told them that I was going to leave my steady job, you know, they said, go, like, go, you know, we're here to catch you if you fall. I'd like to note that I didn't use them, (laughs) but it is nice to know that they were there to catch me if I did fall. But I, but I will say this, Tommy Hilfiger called me into his office. I had been working with his brother, Andy, who had been working with like JLo and like a lot of this sort of young pop stars and actors of the time doing Tommy Denim. Right. And so I would see Andy all the time. And I think Andy told Tommy about me and Tommy had a huge ad campaign 
coming up where he spent exorbitant amounts of marketing budget and all these things that I clearly had never done or never certainly done on my own. I had maybe assisted somebody on a job like this. And he called me into his office and I walked in. I was terrified as 25. And I, he said, so I have this ad campaign coming up. We're going to recreate the White House in California. We're also going to do the first week in Austin, Texas with these like eight young actors. And at the time it was like the biggest actors. It was like Elijah Wood, Elijah Wood, Elijah Wood uh, Kadada Jones. It was um, Josh Hartnett. Oh it God. was Jordana Brewster. Swoon. It was, oh yeah, Swoon is right. And um, all these incredible kids. And he said, you're going to lead it. And it's a two-week job. And the first week's in Austin. And the second week is in LA. We're going to reconstruct the White House in Griffith Park by the observatory and there's going to be about 20 supermodels male and female and i literally just sat there like silent and i was like i like you have the wrong girl (laughs) uh, yeah like i was literally like i don't this isn't this is too big for me it's like you can do it i i know you can do it and i don't know why he thought i could do it i don't know why he took that bet on me i don't know but I went, I was terrified. I probably had four panic attacks over the course of two weeks, Um, but I did it. And it was, and I came home and I just remember feeling like I literally had been born again. It was sort of like, okay, I cannot actually believe I did that. You know, they and were it, happy with my yeah, work. Like, and, and, yeah. and the images were just who insane. Sh- do you remember who the photographer was? Yeah, who shot the it? director was a man called Peter Arnell. Okay. Um, he directed, he was one of the biggest directors of the time. And um, it was terrifying. It was literally terrifying. But I have to tell you that I remained terrified, different, but I remained that same terrified little girl for probably almost 10 years. Really? Yeah, because for me, it was always the driver of my success. It was sort of like, if I didn't have butterflies, if I didn't question everything I did, if it didn't keep me awake at night with excitement, then I wasn't gonna do a good job or it wasn't, it was sort of like, as a stylist, when you're in those positions in those days, when there was insane amounts of money yeah. on my back and I was making the final calls. And when you have people like Tommy and you have these massive directors or, you know, when I went off with Brad Pitt to Prague for two weeks and shot with Juan Car Y and shot with, um, you know, Mario Testino and Stephen Klein and the stakes are so high. Yeah. That as a young person, you're like, oh my God, if this, if I fuck this up, it's me. Right. And that fear for me was a real driver to always give 10,000% to everything I did. And it was sort of like, if they needed 20 options, I had 100. And I have to tell you that it wasn't wasted because I would say that 70% of the time, we ended up flipping directions yeah. and needing whatever it was that I brought. It made more work for me. It made more work for my team. It was more schlepping. It was more work. It was more everything, but like, I didn't care, yeah. you know? And so I think, I don't know. I think it was that training that just stayed with me forever. And I think that, I think that that 
fear and that sort of need to succeed for myself and not let people down was ultimately the thing that drove me throughout my whole styling career. Yeah. Most of my career. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. There's nothing worse than going to a doctor's appointment expecting to be the center of attention and then your doctor seems like they have better things to do and clearly better places to be. Instead of listening to you intently and asking how you actually feel and helping you along, the doctor is actually looking at the clock. On ZocDoc, you'll find quality doctors who focus on you, listen to you, and prioritize your care. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, 
take your insurance and are available when you need them and treat almost every condition under the sun. When you're not feeling your best and just trying to hold it together, finding great care shouldn't take up all of your energy. That's where ZocDoc comes in. Using their free app that millions of users have come to rely on, you can find the right doctor that meets your needs and fits your schedule. Book an appointment with a few taps in their app and start feeling better faster with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash Zoe and download ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Zoe. ZocDoc.com slash Zoe. Okay, so you do this massive job for Tommy Hilfiger. You're blown away by yourself. <laughs> I you, don't know. I still you, was like, oh my God, are you, you okay? <laughs> like, did you, you sure you didn't you fuck this up? You probably slept for two days straight yeah. after the job. Mm-hmm. So then you're freelance. Mm-hmm. How do you get your next job? Like we interviewed with, when we talked to Marissa Hermer, she talked uh-huh. about literally thumbing through the phone book. Yeah, that was to crazy. To figure out uh-huh. how to get work. So, so I would imagine in this, time period. It's word of mouth. You've crushed it it for Tommy's campaign. And then maybe your phone rings a week later because someone has another job for you. Yeah. Or how did that work? How Um, did you, how did you build your client base as a 25 year old (laughs) in Uh, New York city? It was word of mouth. And at the time I was working primarily in music with pop stars and what would happen in those days Did is, that come from the fashion magazine, you think? Or came, were you, you just knew enough people in the music industry? So I had done um, – part of it was Tommy because there was a big connection in there. There was right. sort of like – like he was close with Tommy Matola. I was working with some of the artists. Tommy was the chairman of Sony, I believe, at yes. the time. And all of – the, you know, and there wasn't social media, let's be clear. So right. um, it was word of mouth. And so there were publicists, but also there was managers. And I was hired by the record label, by the managers of the talent. So what happened was I did a freelance job with one of my mentors at my old job. Her name is Haley Hill. And um, she took me in to help her on this job with Britney Spears. <sighs> and Was that... That was hit me, baby, one the, more time. Yeah, it was wow. Yeah, epic, and iconic, crazy. All of the things and for then, a millennial like me. Truth. And then her, the manager there, her name was Sonia Muckle. Um, I still I ran into her a couple of years ago. She's awesome. Anyway, so Sonia had the Backstreet Boys and Britney. And um, and then they all worked. There was this management company called the firm, and they hired me to do Enrique. And I ended up working with Enrique for several, several years, flying all over the place with him. The nicest guy ever. I styled the video where he met his wife, his now wife, Anna oh my Kornikova. Gosh, I remember that. <laughs> and um, and the Backstreet Boys. I mean, it's funny. I was just recently in St. Bart's and they played a lot of Backstreet Boys. That's and so every, funny. And every time I was sitting there, Skylar looked at me and goes, did you style this video, mom? I'm like, yep. Sure did. Sure did. And sure did. And and so that was really like a time. It started with the Millennium album. You know, all I think about is white Prada suits. And uh, but you know, at the time, like I really was a control freak. I mean, because I'm because I'm not now. Um, but <laughs> you're worse now. I'm yeah, sure. <laughs> for sure. But I it was very hard for me to delegate to assistants. So yeah. I really no, I understand that. 
I mean, your name is on everything you do. So that's a tricky task, I think, especially for a Virgo like you. But that also became a full-time job. And what what happened was in, again, like in those days, I hate to sound like a matey, but like there was so much money put behind these artists and the videos and the album covers and the touring and everything yeah. else and the stylists and, and the hair and the makeup and the whole thing. Well, in that day, music videos were the, it's like the marketing tool Correct. for the Correct. record, Correct. the artist, everything, Correct. right? Yeah. So I was shooting music videos with like Francis Lawrence and multiple. I mean, he did a huge chunk of Backstreet Boys videos and- you know, and I would be traveling with them for weeks and weeks at a time. It was a really um, surreal, incredible time. And, you know, those guys are, they're such good guys. And, you know, I mean, it really, I have to say, was a real boot camp. Yeah. Because no one really knows what goes on with stylists and styling and the process when you're working with musicians and bands. Yeah. And how much goes into that. Yeah. Well, because this is called Climbing in Heels, and I think it's about like highlighting women's experiences, do you have a lot of stories where you were not treated well, where you were not treated? Um, I will say this. The Backstreet Boys treated me like a queen. They were the sweetest, especially AJ and Kevin. Um, I was probably closest with. Yeah. Um, they were also sweet. Yeah. Enrique might be the nicest. I, I mean, for all the women obsessed with Enrique, <laughs> you should be because he might be the nicest person I've ever known. Double down on your crush. <laughs> He's yeah. the sweetest, most low maintenance person ever. Baseball hat and hoodie makes him happy. It was never the guys I was working with in the like styling. It wasn't it was, the talent. Correct. correct. It was not yeah. the talent. It was the high ups. And there was a lot of people that didn't treat me like I had a voice, men in very powerful positions Yeah, that if I would make a female talent look classy, they didn't like that. Right. They wanted more skin. Correct. They wanted more skin. They wanted more cleavage. They wanted more this. So that's a really hard place to be in. If your talent Mm -hmm. wants to go a certain direction and feels most confident in X. Yep. And then reps and higher ups are saying we need mm-hmm. a shorter skirt, Correct. a tighter top, yep. or whatever. Yep. How did you how did you sort of make everyone happy? Um, I think the hardest job of a stylist is making everyone happy. Yeah. Um, because you do have to please the client, um, the talent. Right. And you have to please the the other side. Sure. A, they're the ones paying you. Yep. Um, and B, you'll never get hired again. Right. <laughs> so, right. yeah. Um, but I would say that it's not until the artist is in a, is in a higher position that they could call the shots. Yeah. But I did use my voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely did use my voice. Um, they didn't listen. Um, and I specifically remember one incredible video of a very big artist, female, um, we did this magically beautiful video and it was romantic. It was sexy just in a, in a more kind of like, like a cool way, right? Like it was definitely sexy. Like in a Rachel Zoe way. Yeah. There was definitely. <laughs> Not overtly sexy, no. but enough to. Yeah. It was like, she was wearing like attention. a man's shirt or yeah. she was wearing like a beautiful, like sort of transparent white dress kind of thing. Um, and we had to reshoot the whole video. What? Reshot the whole. Really? Yes. 
Truth. Because it wasn't sexy enough or because it was too... It wasn't oh. sexy enough. Oh, no. True story. That's so much wasted money. I know. They didn't care then. They didn't care. They didn't care then. We, wow. We reshot stuff all the time. We would reshoot videos that were like, uh, like, you know, the thing with like a band, it's funny. It's not funny. But like if one person is like going through like a breakup or like whatever, like everything gets canceled. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like someone's sick. You have to redo everything. I mean, it's crazy. It was it was yeah. it was legitimately in hindsight, the most surreal, insane time of my styling life, because the amount of money being thrown at the like industry and all of that like was so insane and and you know and again like the stakes were so high they was music videos were the form of communication right so i mean it's it's a very pressure filled job not to mention so your travel schedule when you're working like this are you are you flying i mean you're flying back and forth and you're going internationally i would imagine yeah i flew to monaco with an artist for less than 24 hours one time for a big appearance and i was very young and i hadn't really done too much of that yet and i uh, i remember the security guards i i went to my room i checked into my room and that's all I remembered because I must have like stayed up the whole plane. Got you had there. been up for like 48 hours. Yeah. By then. yeah. Yeah. And I got there and I got to my room and I just remember putting my stuff on the bed. And next thing I knew, security was like banging down my door. Like I, I must have blacked out. Yeah. And she had to be like on stage. God. <laughs> oh my God. I'm never working again. Like this is it. Yeah. So there was all kinds of stuff like that that happened. And, you know, you just can't ever let them see you sweat. You just gotta, you just gotta figure it out. And there's no one to lean on. Yeah. There's just no one to lean on. You're really alone on an island as a stylist. And that's why some of these like styling duos, I really envy. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about, so you went freelance mm-hmm. and you're working with all of these music artists. I never had a day off, by the way. Like, I'm sure my, you didn't. To go Roger, back to your question. like To be I, fair to Roger, he, he says that about you all the time. Oh. He says in every interview we've ever done, the reason why Rachel's so successful is because Rachel worked harder than everybody else in her industry. Period. I, I didn't. I. I didn't ever. There was no no. Right. Because when you're freelance, when you say no, you realize you may never get. Like every decision to me was like, if you say no, this is someone else's job, yeah. and you're never getting hired. And again. I have to support myself. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And I think that's the thing. And I remember when I went freelance, everyone was like. You're so lucky. You can take vacation whenever you want. And I remember Raj and I looked at each other once. We're like, we haven't taken a vacation in like two years. Right. Because he was investment banking, which also when you're a young investment banker, you don't see the light of day for like two years. Work you to the bone. Yeah. It's insane that schedule too. True. So how did you or when did you decide to get an agent or a manager to represent you as a stylist? And how does that work? I think it was when I started to realize I couldn't handle it myself anymore. It was too much for me to stay on top of. Like I was working too much and too fast to even invoice people. So there was just like money lost. There was like, yeah. you know, things you, are falling through the cracks correct. at some point. Correct. Yeah. And so I had an agent that kind of almost like scouted me, I guess, and was like, you know, I, I yeah, and that was actually funny enough when I switched to Rachel Zoe because my maiden name, for those of you that don't know, 
My full name, birth given name, is Rachel Zoe Rosenzweig. And Rosenzweig was mispronounced, misspelled, miscredited. I they can only imagine. Well, again, in those days, everything was a magazine credit, right? So they would run out of letters. They were like, we can't fit her last name. <laughs> um, it was too long of a name. So my first agent was literally like, let's just use we your middle fix name. The name. Let's yeah. just use your middle name because it's short. Yep. It's yours. <laughs> it's not a made up name. And you're getting married. Like I was engaged to Roger. So it was sort of like I knew that Rosenzweig was gone no matter what, right? Yeah. Because even if I didn't get married, I would have dropped it because it really just was the bane of my existence. No offense, dad, grandpa. <laughs> you rest in peace, grandpa. Yes. But no. But no, I get that. So you get an agent. They tell you to change your name. Mm-hmm. And then were you able to maintain the clients you had without the agent and take on new clients? Or was it like this whole now merger of this manager or slash agent was going to help you with the clients that were coming along with you? I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't really have many situations where an agent brought me a client. Right. They were typically just managing your relationships, correct. essentially. Correct. Yeah. And, and like chasing money and things like that. Um, agents are tricky. A great one is a great one. Yep. And a lot of them aren't. And so I would say that I did a shift when I moved to LA. Right. And I kind of realized that the music industry, while I loved my clients, was really hindering my creativity and obsession with fashion. Got it. And I wasn't creatively fulfilled anymore. As much money as I had, as much money as I was making, this crazy life I was living. Um, and I moved to LA and I, I, I mean, to fast forward, had a meeting with a publicist who's now a really big manager um, in 2003. Yeah. Um, with a woman named Nicole King, now Nicole King Salaka. And she looked at my portfolio. Yes, a portfolio, which is a digital There book. was no Instagram Sorry, uh, profile to right. look at then. Yes. It was actually a uh, big portfolio, like a massive binder of work of that I had work. done yeah. um, in print. And she met with me. And literally two weeks later, she said, I'm in a bind. And one of my clients needs a dress for the Emmys because hers fell through, but she's on set and she doesn't have time for fittings. And cut to, that was Jennifer Garner and she was working on Alias and she was nominated for like her 18th award because it was one of the best shows ever. Um, it was so good. So good. And and Bradley Cooper, remember Bradley Cooper was yes. on Yes. Yes. It was a great show. Great show. And I ended up dressing Jen Garner for the Emmys and then the Globes and then the Oscar, you know, and, and that the whole was thing. like the Rachel Zoe skyrocket. But I want to ask you, thinking about your early days in New York, starting from working at the magazine to having the gumption to go on your own and freelance to then word of mouth, you're styling all of these major, major music artists. What is one piece of advice you would you as Rachel now would give that woman then going through it? I would say use your voice louder. I would say don't be so scared. 
Um, because there really is a fear, I think, when you're a young freelancer that every job is your last job, you know? So I kind of always worked like that, Um, which I guess served me in the end because the thing I always say is like, don't ever get complacent. And I think complacency to me is your biggest enemy when it comes to your career. Yeah. Um, If you're not uncomfortable, you're not growing. It's true. Yeah. And that's how I feel. And I've, I've kind of always been that way. I would say that I missed a lot of things that mattered, you know, like, because I worked and I worked seven days a week, a Sunday was a Monday. It didn't, it didn't matter as someone's birthday, someone's wedding, someone's, and I missed really big things like weddings and funerals and baby showers and, you know, and I did. And, um, you know, in hindsight you go, okay, was being on that ad job to place the proper white tank top on so-and-so more important than, than the wedding that you of missed. your friend yes. or a yeah. family member. Yeah. yeah. I think that's interesting because I think, especially after COVID, I think people in general have a better boundary or, or yeah. trying better to yeah. have a better work-life balance. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's interesting to think of like telling younger Rachel to start setting those boundaries then. Yeah. Like, maybe you wouldn't be, have, have such a difficulty with it even now. Yeah. Like if you would have said, I can forgo this one job yeah. and go to yeah. my friend's wedding, Yeah, you know? Yeah. But I feel like in those days that honestly, I feel like I would have lost the job. Yeah. Whereas I feel like now there's different rules. People have more leeway for people's personal lives, Correct. maybe. In those yeah. days, there was no personal There was life. like show up, or, or, you or shut down. Yeah. Show up or shut down. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's so true. Yeah. Okay. What is one or two items in your closet that you had, like you purchased during that time and you still have in love? Everything. Everything? Everything. So like, Everything. Really? What do you remember as being like, I just got a check Mm -hmm. from doing this job. Mm -hmm. I have to pay my rent. I Mm -hmm. have to pay my bills. Mm -hmm. I'll maybe throw this in savings, but I'm buying this. What was it? You know, the one thing I will say to that, you know, in full disclosure, I grew up in a great family. I never wanted for anything. I never, but I always approached my life as if I had nothing to fall back on. Yeah. So for me, I knew something was very clear which was I was not going to ask anyone for money, whether it be my parents, whether it be Roger. I wanted to buy my own things with my money that I made. And that was something that I just, it was, that was a thing for me. I never wanted to be the woman that married the rich guy and had him shop for me. Like it wasn't, that wasn't my thing. I can't even imagine, imagine a version of you that is like that to be, to be honest with you. Yeah. And in all fairness, my saving grace on my plane ride home was watching Pretty Woman with the biggest smile on my face. (laughs) And that scene in the shop where she buys everything is just like the happiest moment. But I would say that buying my first Hermes bag, in full disclosure, I remember walking into the store and walking out about 20 times. Yeah. And literally going, don't. You're such an idiot. Yeah. Don't do this. Why would you? You know, it was like, But I have to tell you that everything in my career that I did that with and spent too much money on, I have now and still wear. I just wore in St. Bart's probably 10 things that I've had for 20 years. I'm not joking. I love that. Like I could show you then and now. 
I mean, <laughs> she's a collector for real Listen, a collector. Guys, spend more on the good stuff. You will have it and wear it forever. Well, thank you for letting me listen to how you've climbed in heels. The first this is part one. This is part one. There's We're so many do, parts. I mean, There's we, so many parts. we haven't, I mean, we just got to LA story-wise. <laughs> oh my so God. everyone's going to have to stay tuned for chapters two, three, four. And also you guys put your questions in if there's anything you want to know specifically, because as Mary said, this is a very long journey. <laughs> with many. She's many. got a lot to share. Thank you so much for listening to part one of my life slash career journey where I am clearly still learning and growing every single day. Don't forget to write a review wherever you get your podcasts. I love reading them. And while you're at it, follow me on at Rachel Zoe and at Climbing In Heels Pod on Instagram for more updates on upcoming guests, episodes, and of course, all things Curator. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.